Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. Wow. What an end to the season. Uh, it's taken me a few days to recover. I actually wanted to take some space to get away from what was just a wild final two games of the playoffs. Uh, obviously, the Durant injury and then the Clay Thompson injury were as striking and shocking as the wild classic games that wrapped up that series. So uh, I, I couldn't even really sleep after game six, just trying to process everything that had happened and I've taken a few days and now come back, rewatched a lot of the film, looked at my notes, added some new notes. So today we'll talk about, we'll have a little post-mortem on the finals, specifically game six. I want to get into the incredible stories on the court, the untold stories on the court at the end of game six. We'll do that. Also released the top 10 players video on YouTube this week. That was quite a production and, and a really interesting process to go through. So I'll, I'll answer a couple questions that I've had about that. Also, a quick update on the Backpicks GOAT, the top 40 career list concept. Now that the season has ended, some updates there. Uh, for patrons, I do have a very special, I want to I give you all a very special thanks for your support this year. It's been an incredible year for me in this regard, hearing from you, interacting with you, getting all of the the support and donations and, and pledges and everything. So I do typically do a pretty detailed breakdown for my own records of the finals, and I'm in the process of sharing that uh, in a way. That'll be a post that'll be up on Backpicks for all the patrons out there, just basically detailing a lot of things that I keep in my process, film observations, stats, chart, charting data, things like that. So, uh, and of course, Anthony Davis was traded. I was going to record this podcast yesterday, which was Saturday, the day the Anthony Davis news broke. Couldn't get around to it. Went out to eat lunch, left the house, and got the alert on my phone. So, I'm kind of glad a little more time to process that, and I will touch on that briefly. But first, first, the untold stories of the end of the NBA Finals, just an incredible game. And anytime there's a game that ends with, you know, a one-point, two-point game or something, all of the plays during the game have a massive effect on that outcome. I talk about this in Thinking Basketball when breaking down the difference between the fourth quarter and the first quarter. And so anytime you have a game that ends like that where it's 111-110 on the last possession, all of the little things that happen before that at any point in the game are huge. They could swing anything. And this was a game that had a number of incredible basketball plays down the stretch. And so I wanted to start, I wanted to pick it up at the end of the third quarter because that's when my mind really started popping and racing with this storytelling idea of the the untold stories that took place on the court. And of course, I'm 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 known for and and wrote a book about really how we create narratives, how we develop these sort of false narratives and latch on latch on to these ideas. But I I love storytelling. I love the the process, not just artistically and cre- creatively. I love movies and all that stuff, but just within the game of basketball, the arcs that you see players have. I'm just not a fan of making them up or zero-summing things or, or stuff like that. So the actual stories are incredible to me. It was, it was fantastic to watch the Raptors win a title and some of those players like Kyle Lowry and Marc Gasol get a ring 
and actually get to the mountaintop. And, th- and that's what I wanted to chronicle here today, something that I don't think I've seen anyone talk about. And certainly there are things that I will forget in time. So I wanted to make a historical record, basically, of the, the end of this game and what jumped out to me picking it up at the end of the third quarter. Speaking of Kyle Lowry, he was the guy that got my mind going in this direction. Kyle Lowry, end of the third quarter, there's a playoff, an offensive rebound where he leaks out. And it's kind of an awkward play and formation for Golden State because Lowry was switched and the shooter took the shot moving forward. And then usually on a leak out, you have some responsibility of the back guard. So on the telecast, Jeff Van Gundy called out Steph Curry, but Quinn Cook actually would have been the more logical guy to try to get back. And basically it was a rebound. Leonard got the rebound, looked up, made a really easy pass to Kyle Lowry who had released and they got a bucket. Okay. I think that made it 88-86. Golden State was still ahead at that point in time. Well, fast forward a couple minutes, start of the fourth quarter, only a few minutes later, and there's this very similar play, but Kyle Lowry's on the other end of the stick this time. Instead, basically, there's a steal, a loose ball situation and a steal in the lane, and Draymond Green comes up with the basketball, he looks up, Quinn Cook starts, He's he, Quinn Cook is guarding Fred Van Fleet. Oh, wait a second, guys. Oh, my God. I, I had it down. I had it down. Van Vliet. I learned how to do it. I'm going to do it right from now on. The key, the key with Fred's name is you have to slow it down. You have to think of, like, a van, and then a new word is coming up. Van Vliet Street. That's what we're doing. We're taking a van to Vliet Street. Van Vliet. I've... I've Man, I can't believe I choked right out of the gate. No more. Going to get it right. Fred Van Vliet. So Fred was in the corner. Quinn Cook was in the corner. The loose ball's on the other side of the paint. And as Draymond goes to pick it up, Cook just explodes down the slot. Right down the court. Leaves Fred in the dust. Green sees this. Green goes to throw the quarterback you know, it's like a wide receiver streaking down the slot. And he throws a perfectly fine pass. It's not the greatest pass. And Cook is not the greatest wide receiver. He doesn't adjust to the ball or anything in midair. And he's a little tight relative to where Lowry is. But back comes Kyle Lowry on this almost this exact same play, like a, a reflexive version of what we saw earlier a couple minutes before in the third quarter. And Lowry this time does what you want to do to make a, a save or recovery like this. He's sort of the high guard on the ball side, and he drifts back and intercepts the pass at midcourt, and it is a huge play. Huge. Because in basketball, you don't get a lot of plays that aren't like three-point shots or four-point plays or things like that that have massive changes in expected value. This is a huge expected value or EV, EV play. Massive plus EV. And what that means is if Lowry doesn't get that steal, either by virtue of not getting there quite in time or the ball is a better pass or whatever, that's going to be a completely uncontested layup for Quinn Cook. That's that's like worth 1.9 points or something. You make that almost every single time. But instead, because Cook is streaking down the court, when Lowry intercepts the basketball, now Toronto has a five-on-four going the other way. So that five-on-four going the other way for the value of that possession becomes much greater than a typical half-court possession. Half-court possession might be worth, I mean, again, just back of the napkin math might be worth a point. That kind of situation from my research is 1.3, 1.4 points. So you're talking about a play that could be closer to worth plus two and a half points in expected value. That's massive. And Lowry was involved in both. Of, I mean, these are just the the wild things you see at the end of championship seasons that your brain starts to pay attention to and might notice and remember, and then in time we'll just completely all forget. So, huge play there. Ended up with a wide-open shot for Ibaka. That's why the the five-on-four matters. They just didn't have enough defenders. Lowry comes down. Easy little shovel pass to Ibaka. He makes that bunny 12-footer that he loves. Okay. Now jump ahead. Jump ahead to six and a half minutes left in the game. Toronto wants to start running that pick-and-roll action. And 
Boogie Cousins, you guys will do this. Boogie Cousins did this earlier in the series. But big men in the pick and roll action, they will occasionally get their hand down into the passing lane for like that bounce pass, that little pocket pass. Well, I can't remember someone getting lower than Kevon Looney on a play like this. He is, I think it was Lowry again running the action, and Looney's the big. They put in pick and roll, and Kevon Looney gets down like near the floor. His hand is way, way, way down on the court, blocks the pass, incredible steal. You might remember it goes the other way, and Sean Livingston streaks down the court for a dunk with six and a half minutes left. The Warriors go up three. Oracle's going crazy. And then, you know, back comes Kyle Lowry. So Kyle Lowry comes back the other side of the court, and he drives on the left wing. The defense collapses. And Steph Curry is really good defensively, probably his best defensive trait, in my opinion, at zoning up two. It's sort of a classic weak side principle when you need to send help toward the ball. You have two on the ball, something like that. Well, you're going to have a power play somewhere else. And so what Curry does is he's got the guy in the corner to worry about or near the dunker spot, and he's got the shooter that he was originally guarding. And you split the difference. And, that, and, and sometimes he jumps the passing lane and picks up the steal because he's really good at reading that. Well, in this case, he, he basically guessed wrong. He misread the situation. Iba- uh, not Ibaka, excuse me. Pascal Siakam was near the dunker spot. Lowry comes, comes as Lowry's driving on the other side of the court. Curry sort of jumps out to the wing instead of staying at home or respecting Siakam in the dunker spot. Siakam, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure why, because it didn't look like Lowry had a clear path to the wing, but uh, I also thought Steph Curry wore down and was fatigued, and uh, that led to some sloppy mental mistakes at the end of this game and a couple other games at, at near the end of the series physically. And in this case, he jumps out of the way, and Lowry just makes a beautiful pass in traffic, little bouncer, splitting it to Siakam. Okay, so we're still on this like one and three-point game, back and forth, back and forth. It's 99-96, little over five minutes left. Kawhi Leonard misses a tough fadeaway jumper in the lane. And I didn't catch this watching it the first time. I'm not sure I caught it the second time, unbeknownst to maybe anyone. I mean, these are the untold stories that just fascinate me from an X's and O's basketball standpoint, historical standpoint, just these little quirky things that go into winning a championship. Unbeknownst to anyone, Mark Gasol hooks Kavon Looney. He does that. You know how James Harden, when he tries to get the, the rip through foul, will, will flex his biceps, will bend that arm? It's the same kind of hook. Gasol hooks Looney's arm into the little crease between Mark's forearm and his biceps, actually spins Kavon Looney on the rebound. If you if you see this play, and I will uh, try to include it in the postmortem for, for patrons, if you see this play, Looney, Looney spins, spins a good, you know, 90 degrees in the other direction. And what that does is, it took Looney away from being able to get the rebound as it came off. And as it came off, Pascal Siakam instead got a hand on it, tipped it, and tipped it right toward Looney. Well, as this is happening and Looney is spun sideways, Mark Gasol switches hands that he's holding Kavon Looney with. So he, he, he keeps holding on to the right hand, but Gasol just uses his other hand as this is all happening, pins Looney's hand down, and the ball hits Looney in the shoulder. Only he, he only has one hand free. And Kavon Looney doesn't exactly have, you know, Chris Webber's hands. So he sticks his left hand up, the, tries to pin the basketball against like his shoulder or neck or head area. This all happens very quickly. And the ball kind of hovers up there. Gasol lets go of his right arm. Remember, Looney is having trouble lifting his arms. He's got the the chest cartilage injury and all that. Gasol lets go of his arm, reaches back over, grabs and steals the rebound from him, controls it, kicks it out to Freddie Van Vliet, and Van Vliet gets fouled on a three-point attempt to hit three massive free throws 
to tie the game at 99. I mean, whew, oh, I need a breath. I mean, just plays like that that are just these incredible little sub-basketball wars and the craftiness and and sort of veteran acumen of someone like Marc Gasol. I mean, not just playing in the NBA, but learning internationally and Spanish team and, you know, the fact that his brother is Pau Gasol, just the tricks of the trade in the trenches that no one sees. Reminds me a little of football. Some of the great, most important plays you'll ever see in big games will happen in the trenches on the offensive or defensive line, and no one talks about it or notices it. So that was a huge, huge play down the stretch. Okay. Then a couple, you know, a couple plays later, about four minutes left in the game, 4.15, I think, Draymond comes streaking down the court in transition. And you'll, you'll probably remember this play. This play, Lowry reaches around him, absolutely hacks him, just grabs, grabs his right arm. And now we have Draymond trying these sort of veteran, guile, crafty move to get the call. He was fouled. But as this is all happening, of course, Lowry doesn't leave his hand there. He kind of gets pulled away. And what Green is trying to do is accentuate the contact to draw the foul, to incite the whistle from whoever the baseline referee was. And in doing this, he actually almost like throws the basketball over his head in a flailing action and turns the ball over. And he does not get the call. And so you have this, this, you know, incredible poetic situation where on one end, Gasol makes this huge, critical, massive play by trying a kind of like a veteran move in the paint, that kind of hand fighting and those little hooks that are hard to see happen all the time. Well, I shouldn't say all the time. They, they happen plenty from the right parties. And at the other end, similar kind of situation, foul drawing or accentuating plays in big moments. This is something veterans do, and it backfires totally. They just completely turn the basketball over. So speak, speaking of Mark, next time down, the, and, and Gasol did not have a great game relative to some of the other games he's played in the last few weeks. And, but in this play, it was about four minutes left. Curry comes off a curl, that action that he loves. He gets a pretty clear look, but Gasol's ability to jump out on that in help situation was very good at times in this series and in this particular play maybe the best he did in the entire series in terms of affecting the shot. He almost blocks it, and it looks like Curry maybe even adjusts it at the last second. That's how close Mark gets there. And then Curry almost like lands on Gasol's ankles. I'm a little nervous about Curry and his ankles at some point if teams continue to play up into him like this. There was two or three plays during the series that I slowed down where he landed on a foot. Ironically, in the corner, I think it's game three, in the corner where Kawhi Leonard was injured that created this very landing space rule, Curry lands on Leonard's foot. There's no roll. It's not violence. He actually just lets himself fall, which a lot of players do to uh, sort of dissipate and absorb that impact. But um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that's... I don't know. They don't seem to like. They don't seem to call the landing space foul with him. And anyway, I'm totally sidetracked on landing space because the point there was Gasol made an incredible play. And then, of course, after a Van Vliet three, Toronto's up 104-101. Boogie Cousins is back in the game. And with Boogie Cousins back in the game, Raptors go right after him and pick and roll. So sometimes. Golden State switches this. This was one of those times. And that leaves Boogie out on an island against Van Vliet. He does a decent job. Van Vliet misses a three. But this happened over and over again in the series. I wouldn't say it was a theme, but it was an issue when Golden State switched these, especially late in games. You had Ibaka now on Steph Curry under the hoop. And no matter how much Steph Curry 
tried to do his best Marcus Gasol impression and hold Ibaka's arm. He does the same kind of like little hook. You know, all these things, they, they're reflexive. It was incredible reviewing the tape at the end of this game. Yeah, this is just what, you know, I'm thinking like, wow, all the little stories in the trenches, the X's and O's, kind of blew my mind how they just went back and forth. So Curry now tries the Gasol move, but Ibaka's just too strong. He basically goes up, he almost gets the rebound with one hand, he clears the other hand, and it's an easy putback because of that switch. And Toronto goes up 106-101. Just over two minutes left. This was the play where Curry actually played really solid man D out in space on Kyle Lowry. Lowry gets to his left, takes this crazy fade away as the shot clock's winding down the ball hits the backboard, goes up, hit, you know, hits the rim, hits the backboard, softly falls through. It's that Don Nelson-style shot from the 1969 finals in Game 7 50 years ago. Raptors go up 108-102. Then I thought another big play from Kyle Lowry. There's a minute 25 left. Curry comes off the curl, catches, boogie goes to the bucket. He's open. Curry makes a nice whip pass to him. And who slides over to take the charge but Kyle Lowry? They didn't call it a charge. They called it an offensive, uh, defensive foul. Cousins got to the free throw line. But I thought Lowry made a fantastic play and was there. The call went the other way. But then Boogie misses one of two free throws. And Golden State just had all kinds of free throw issues in this game. They ended up, let's see, 21 of 30. Man, that is a lot of points to leave on the table in a game that ended up being a one-point game down the stretch. So, okay, where was I? Now we're in the final minute. I think things get even crazier in the final minute. If you are if you are geeking out as much as I am on some of those intricacies that uh, I've been talking about in the fourth quarter and down the stretch of this game, the final minute was just nuts. So Golden State comes down. They're behind 109-106. Green is looking for Curry. He's he's off the basketball, looking for Curry on a little curl action. Now, as the series wound down, I thought Van Vliet got more and more physical with him off the ball. If you go back and watch games two and three, it's it's jarring actually to see how much more Curry was moving. Now, most of that is uh, his burst. Let me just be clear on that. Most of that is Curry had way more in his legs before game four. And his movement and his speed on these cuts, he just didn't have that extra gear. Well, that allowed Van Vliet to retain more contact. And part of the way he retains contact is, you know, he's he's small and compact and it's hard to see. But there's little clutches and grabs and things of this nature. Well, the, the wild part about this play is it's the NBA Finals. You're on the verge of winning a championship. The clock goes under a minute. You have the greatest three-point shooter in the history of the game in your sights. And Curry starts cutting toward the ball. Van Vliet grabs his arm by the wrist. Like, his arm is fully extended, and he has it grabbed by the wrist. And Curry yanks his arm and slips away from him. And who's standing there but our old friend Kyle Lowry? And Kyle Lowry grabs him then by the same wrist so he can't get away. I, f- I flipped that, sorry. It was Lowry first and then Van Vliet. And the ball ends up, you know, they ended up getting it to Curry at the top. He starts driving. Kawhi Leonard gets those huge hands out, tips it into the backcourt. The play resets. And then out of nowhere, Boogie Cousins, with the face-up drive from the perimeter, sweeps into the lane, makes it 109-108. Okay, now, what I'm going to do, by the way, is I'm going to create a Twitter thread with some of these plays so if you want to look them up and slow them down and, and have a reference point from this podcast at LG35 on Twitter, you can go over there and check that out. Another thing I, I haven't heard anyone talk about that you may not have noticed, Kyle Lowry comes down the court in this situation, 40 seconds left on the clock or whatever it is, and Nick Nurse wants a timeout. But as this is all happening, Curry is going to guard and stay with Fred Van Vliet. Okay, how am I doing, guys? Am I nailing the Van Vliet? I think I am. I think I got it. So (laughs) Curry's with Fred. Okay, Sean Livingston 
is idly running toward Van Vliet. No one is guarding Kyle Lowry. Curry is, because Livingston is also near Van Vliet and so is Curry, Curry is yelling and waving his arms in the air like a madman, telling Livingston he's got to go guard Kyle Lowry on this possession. And as this is all happening, Lowry has, geez, he, no one is guarding him as he brings the ball across half court. The The lane is, it's not wide open, there are people there, but it would be an advantage situation if he pushed or tried to make a play. And he has Kawhi Leonard with him. He may have had, uh, Siaka may have been the other guy on that side. So he's got really skilled, athletic, cutters, shooters, the whole thing. Any other situation that's not at the end of the game where Nurse and Lowry aren't thinking timeout, they're pushing here. I'm even wondering earlier in the game if it's a timeout situation. If you get a, if you get like that Quinn Cook fake spike. For those who haven't seen the clip earlier in the game, I think it, it may have even been in this fourth quarter. I can't, I can't even keep track anymore. Quinn Cook was come, they wanted to get Steph Curry back in the game, and Quinn Cook came up near half court, and it looked like instead of calling a timeout. He just spun an improv to catch the Raptors off guard, drives baseline, and then feathers a little pass into the paint for, I think it was Jordan Bell who was there, who made that bucket. So it was kind of like a fake spike. It was a fake timeout. Lowry, again, sort of like the reflexive version of this. No one guards him on the timeout. And instead of going for it, they call the timeout. Okay, so now we're in the final 30 seconds. The, the, The championship is within everyone's grasp it's a 109-106 game or a 109-108 game it's a one-point game and they get the ball to Pascal Siakam and Draymond Green one of the great defenders in the league's history he took a calculated gamble in my opinion he saw the ball briefly exposed made a lunge for it in a way that was clean if he goes with the other hand and tries to reach around it could be a foul so instead he lunges and reaches across he 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 takes his inside shoulder, his right shoulder, and sends it across to the outside. So now both of his shoulders are clear of Siakam. The problem was when you miss on that gamble, Pascal gets by, gets an easy little runner. And my issue with this play is if you get it, you potentially have a live ball turnover situation leading into a fast break. That's good. That could be very good. But if you don't, there's only five seconds on the shot clock here. Six, five or six seconds, basically. You're, you're in a low clock situation. And on top of it, you're Draymond Green. You have to think that you have a solid shot of stopping Siakam here as he comes at you. That, that was my issue with that gamble by Draymond. But we'll come back to him in about 10 seconds. Because after, after this trip where Steph Curry runs down the court, splits a double team, and he trips over... He trips over his own legs. I mean, it's just a wild, crazy, classic finish to a classic game. Trips over his own legs, gets the free throws, and now we're on that 111-110 score, that famous score that just was stuck there for the end of the game until some uh, technicals and, and free throws finally closed it. Of course, they can't get the ball in, so they call timeout. They get it to Kawhi in the backcourt. Nice play idea. Curry comes, gets the double team properly. Kawhi gets it up to the man. Green sitting on the pass. They have Green in center field exactly where they want him. And Draymond Green, he did something like this in game four, if I recall correctly. He just decides, I'm gonna, I'm I'm just gonna create a turnover. And he gets up into Danny Green and he starts waving his hands like he's in the Matrix. Like he's an agent, you know, this faster than the eyes can detect. Uh, he's not fouling. He's swiping at the ball, but it's really air. He's he's all up in Danny's business. And Danny Green gets flustered, throws it away. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And then the last play, the last play may be the craziest of all these. I got, I got half a page of notes on the last play just diagramming what happened. First of all, Inbounds pass. This is a Brad Stevens type play. You may remember he ran something very similar against Philadelphia last year in Philadelphia, where they throw the in the playoffs where they they throw the ball to the opposite side of the court. So it starts with this 
huge high looping pass that in real time, I thought Iguodala threw it away. I thought they couldn't get it in or there was a miscommunication somewhere and he threw it away. But that was the play design. It was a looping pass to to an empty side on the opposite side of the court. As this is happening, Boogie Cousins sets a screen, a flare screen, so, so Curry can curl off. And as he does, this is all happening at the same time. So Draymond catches the pass. And when Draymond catches the pass, so on this screening action, you've got the man on Curry. I think it was Van Vliet. And then Ibaka was on Cousins. So typically Ibaka has been stepping out. That big man has been stepping out on Curry in this action. But whatever that little misdirection was with the pass going to the corner and the way this the court was spread, it was a brilliant geometric design. Quinn Cook is in the near corner, so Lowry can't leave him. And you just had open space on the court because Kawhi is on the inbounder. They don't want to just completely leave the inbounder. So there's a lot of space where this is all happening. And Ibaka, for whatever reason, starts moving toward the hoop instead of toward Curry. And this gives Curry just enough room where he feels like he's open and comfortable. And Green, now the play is easy for Green in the sense that he's a master of making these reads. And because of that space, when he catches the basketball, if Ibaka overcommits, no one's in the paint. Leonard's out near the inbounder, and Kyle Lowry is closer to the nearside corner. So there's no one left to guard the paint. So the play design, which is the brilliance of this, is that if Ibaka jumps Curry, which is probably what Golden State was looking for, Boogie Cousins is going to dive right down the lane, and Green's going to hit him with one of those passes. When that option is not there, when Ibaka went in the opposite direction, it became a very easy pass for Draymond to Steph. Steph comes off the curl, and Ibaka's recovery was incredible because he only took about a step toward the hoop and then immediately realized, I got, I got to go guard the greatest three-point shooter of all time. And as he's, as he's closing on Curry, and this play reminded me of the 2000 Finals, Game 4, Reggie Miller with a shot, I think it was in that overtime game, to tie the game at the end of the game. Robert Ory comes at him on a closeout just like this. Robert Ory was about 6'10", similar long size guy. And Miller adjusts the shot at the last second. And I'm, I'm not saying that Steph adjusted this shot uh, in the same way. Miller and the presser afterward talked about how he saw Ori at the last second and realized he needed a little extra arc. But if you look at Curry, he's, he rushes it in the sense that it looks like he rushes it out of excitement, but also I think he feels Ibaka closing on him. And I don't think he shoots it that way in most normal situations. I'm not even sure he shoots that. And that's another crazy part of this play. They only needed a point. A two-point bucket would have won it. And so it's hard to it's hard to fault that shot from Steph Curry, A, because it's Steph Curry, and B, because when you're behind in those situations, giving yourself more time for the rebound or the foul without a timeout to get the ball back is always a great idea. But the only thing I could think of there in the moment that I think maybe would have been a better option in not even just in hindsight, just as you see what's happening is one, and he did it throughout the series, just a little up fake and a dribble. He, that mid range jumper, one of those little foul line floater leaners. I think that would have been a much, much easier shot for him in that situation. It was the same kind of shot that he had at the end of game five to tie the game. The only difference was Ibaka wasn't, flying at him right up on his hand. So, that's not the craziest part of this play, though. (laughs) This is what's insane. The craziest part of this play was the rebound. Now, ironically, Andre Iguodala stands out near where he inbounds the basketball basically the whole time. And he almost looks like he's still standing out of bounds when Curry shoots. And so, he kind of like watches the rebound I don't know if he was hoping for a kick out or what, but he doesn't really ever get into the play. He certainly doesn't uh, crash the boards. I don't know why you wouldn't crash the boards. There's five seconds left. You want to intentionally foul anyway. So I'm not really sure what he was doing there other than just being caught up in the moment. So the rebound goes up, 
And man, this is crazy. Kawhi comes in to box out DeMarcus Cousins. Boogie is still stronger than him and moves him toward the hoop right where he wants to be. As the ball comes off, he stops driving him forward. He goes to rebound the basketball. And what happens? He just can't get enough lift. The, the cruel irony of that moment where Boogie Cousins doesn't have the same lift that he normally has because he's coming off that Achilles surgery. The, the clear, definable difference between his physical movement this year and prior years is that lift. And so his brain is, is basing this on a decade's worth of rebounding. He's right where he wants to be. He jumps in a, in a way that he thinks he's going at the apex. He probably thought he had it, and it just glances off his hand. And then Kawhi Leonard makes some Superman play where he teleports around him. And then this is, if you didn't hear the press conference, Kawhi said, the second I got the ball, I knew they were going to foul me. So what he does is he literally throws it out in front of himself and runs after it. He doesn't try to dribble it or hold on to it. He throws it out in front of himself. This is some twisted, mad scientist version of Magic Johnson throwing the ball down to an empty court at the end of the 1991 Western Conference Finals. This this was out there. And then he's something. Now, meanwhile, if Andre Iguodala were in the play, that's right where that could have been his rebound. That could have been his basketball. I don't think anyone realized that fouling there was the only way to win for the Warriors as they're going after that ball. Five seconds when it comes off and and Leonard dribbles. Four, three seconds out near midcourt. They're diving on the ball. Iguodala does come out near midcourt and ironically gets his hand on the ball to knock it away from Leonard instead of fouling. To keep it alive, if you foul, your season is extended, keeps it alive, they fall on the floor, timeout, Nothing. You can't win if you're Golden State by possessing the ball at half court with one second left and a live clock. There's just no way. Unbelievable. I've worked myself up into a sweat just thinking about and describing the end of this absolutely crazy series. Uh, If anybody out there is wondering about clutch narratives and things like that, uh, I, I did check the numbers in the fourth quarter. Steph Curry, in the whole series, in the fourth quarter, he averaged 24.1 points per 75, 57% true shooting, eight assists, one turnover. Not great numbers. I think he definitely wore down at the end of the series. I think that game three, I said it at the time, and other people did as well, that game three, even just taking him out at that five and a half minute mark in game three, I thought that was a big mistake. And his legs, you know, he did get kneed in the thigh at the start of the second half of this game as a shooter and as a guy who ran around a lot. The same thing happened, I can relate to that, and the same thing happened to Ray Allen in the 2010 finals. He went 8-for-8 in Game 2, I think, in L.A., back in Game 3. Early in the game, he got clobbered by Derek Fisher in the thigh with a knee and just did not look like he had the legs for the rest of the series. Still, good stats that were slightly down for him. I definitely thought he wore down, but decent stats. Kawhi Leonard, uh, another one. Again, this is just why I'm throwing this out there. I don't think there's anything more important about the fourth, per se. But fourth quarter stats for the whole series, Kawhi was 28.9 points per 75. And if you remove intentional fouls and technical fouls and things like that, he was 51.5% true shooting. Uh, The rest of the Raptors, by the way, were amazing in the fourth quarters. They were 58% true shooting. Kawhi did have six assists and three turnovers in that stretch. Before the series with Milwaukee, one of the things I was concerned about with the Raptors is whether or not they could get enough scoring from their role players. And it turned out that not only did Norman Powell help in that series, but Fred Van Vliet went nuts after his son was born. I looked up the splits. Before his son was born on May 20th, that was the middle of the Bucks series, he was 8 for 41 from downtown in the playoffs. That's 19.5%. He was scoring 7 points per 36 minutes. Since then, after that occurred, he ma- he's made 30, to end the playoffs, he made 30 of 57 threes. 
That's 53% on his threes over 16 points per 36. Legitimately became uh, a huge scoring weapon. And I don't think Toronto, again, championship teams, it takes everyone's effort is required when the margin of victory isn't large. And in this case, the margin of victory actually wasn't large in this series. Yes, there were three close games and Golden State won two of them. And Toronto had some more lopsided wins. But as I'll talk about in a second, the overall margin of victory wasn't enormous. Golden State still generated a decent offensive output, actually a strong offensive output relative to Toronto. They finished the series with an offensive rating of 111 when Curry was on the court, 110 overall. And that's that's incredible to me, by the way. That is That absolutely blows my mind. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm higher on Steph Curry than casuals. I, I, I don't know uh, or don't really care to get into all of the other particulars going on there. But, I mean, you think about the team that they had around them and the quality of defense that they were playing, one of the great playoff defenses ever from top to bottom, both on paper, the the schemes from Nick's, Nick Nurse, the performances and the IQ of some of these guys. I mean, like Sergi Baca had great defensive moments. And if you're making a list, he's like third or fourth at best on the names that you start thinking of with some of these defensive guys. Danny Green is not, you know, it's Gasol, it's Siakam, it's Ibaka. Kawhi Leonard would obviously be in that group. Uh, it's just... Wow, it was incredible to me. So 157 minutes played with Steph and Clay on the court, and they had not only did they have a 113 offensive rating, but they were outscored by one point in those 157 minutes. And missing a game and a half, Clay Thompson, not only the game three game, but remember he missed the end of game two that they ended up holding on to and winning the box in one game, and then really really missed him down the stretch of game six that loss in the 93 minutes in this series where curry played without clay thompson they were outscored by 18 points and the offensive rating was 107 but just absolutely Kawhi leonard when he was on the court uh, outscored golden state by 15 points over the course of the series and it was interesting, Kawhi's minutes, he played 236 of his 243 minutes with Curry on. So it was just minute matching, substitution matching, basically the entire series. And in, in that stretch for Kawhi, uh, they outscored Golden State by 11 points with him on the court. They did great when he was off the court. But when he was on the court, they outscored him by 11 points in those minutes. As I said, 90-something percent of those minutes were with Curry on the court. And over a six-game series, that's like a plus-one differential. That's a close series. So they needed it all. But someone asked me about the role players, where I see the role players of Golden State ranking for a championship-level team. And when applying the context, because they have defensive part, they have parts, they have pieces. But when you look at how top-heavy the team is, you remove Durant, you remove Clay for a game and a half, uh, Draymond Green starts to lose value offensively when he can't pass to, you know, when he can't take advantages of advantage situations, of those power play situations. And basically what you're left with is Boogie Cousins, Quinn Cook, Yurebko, Alfonso McKinney. The, this is a role of, a cast of players, of role players, who ranks right up there for any team this century. I definitely think of the 2007 Cavs, the 2011 Heat were really thin at the top, but they had three offensive guys who could self-generate and create for others at the top, and they had some shooters around them. This team lacked shooting, and the only other team that I can really think of to compare it to in the role-player department is the 2001 Philadelphia 76ers, because they had, after Iverson, they had uh, Aaron McKee as a secondary creator. Ty Hill had a little bit, like he had a little bit of a post game. But then you start getting into like guys in the finals, like Rajah Bell was playing minutes and he was attacking, but he's kind of 
analogous to Quinn Cook and it, it, you know George Lynch. Maybe he's kind of like Andre Iguodala in terms of his offensive role and ability at that point in time. So I, I, I was I was blown away by the fact that let me just put a stat in perspective. Curry without Clay Thompson, just by himself out there, boxing one defenses, uh, the whole nine yards, 107 offensive rating against Toronto in this series. With Clay, 113. Milwaukee, with Giannis, produced a 107 offensive rating in the conference finals against Toronto. Against those Giannis rules. So, let's finish up with a top 40 update and some questions from Twitter. The only real movement is Steph Curry. Kevin Durant is robbed of any championship equity this year because his injury occurred in the key rounds in the playoffs. That's not ideal, but that's the system that I've used for this to evaluate the most valuable careers. So Curry passes Chris Paul. Chris Paul gets a, you know, he had an okay season, but Curry moves up to number 20. He's now in that next group of players and is primed to slide up into the Dirk Nowitzki, Jerry West, Julius Irving, David Robinson group. That's coming for Curry. Uh, if he were to continue and have tremendous longevity, obviously could have enough to get into the top 10, but certainly I think is going to be at worst case scenario, barring, oh, please don't let it happen, a catastrophic injury. Can't take any more Golden State injuries. Uh, he will be in that mix in the teens. And in my opinion, in this assessment, already one of the 20 most valuable careers in NBA history. Uh, another important update, LeBron LeBron passes Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in raw career value at this point, but the longevity adjustment, the era adjustment that I use to essentially say, hey, look, play, you know, guys play longer now. We have to account for that. So relative to value impact, Kareem is still just slightly ahead, but LeBron extremely close to passing him, and that could happen next year. Okay, questions from Twitter put out the top 10 video this week on YouTube. Here's a question from friend of the show, Bits Fitz. Bits Fish, excuse me, I got my Van Vliet situation going on here. Are you underrating James Harden's scalability? Why do you think his skill set cannot carry over well to a less ball dominant role? I've spoken about this before, so I certainly won't belabor it, but there is some nuance that I wanted to touch on, and that's why I'm grabbing this question just to address it here. If you are a guy, and LeBron is like this, Steve Nash is like this, Harden's like this, if you're a guy who, when you play that one-man offensive role, you can make an offense really good by yourself, it's it's not that, I mean, you're already, you can already make an offense good by yourself. So the issue is not that you become a terrible player or you can't play on high-level offenses because you can make one of those by yourself by being the centerpiece. The issue is when we talk about scalability or portability at fitting with other guys, it's how much of that same value carries over. Will he be as valuable? And to me, that's where the answer is no. Now, I like Harden's skill set in terms of passing and shooting, but he doesn't move that much. And all of the, to, to, to really break down the answer to some sort of... Uh, you know, specific detail, you see how he holds the ball, pounds the ball, and wants the switch and gets guys in the rhythm and, and dribbles them into submission and, you know, that whole dance that he does with defenders, he just literally won't be able to do that dance as much. So it's not, I think there's some confusion sometimes when the really high-level offensive uh, quarterbacks come up, Magic is the same way. It's It's not that they don't fit, it's that they can't do the same things, so you should just not automatically expect that value to carry over to offenses that are already good, because you'd have to replace so many of their possessions with something else. Okay, another friend of the show, Bill Monty. Speaking of Anthony Davis, I wonder what your thoughts are on how much is, too, he asked this yesterday before the trade, I wonder how much your thoughts are on how much is too much to give up for someone like AD. Um, I'm not sure you can give up too much. Maybe the draft picks start to become an issue. The 
What ended up happening with the draft picks in that trade is incredible. But I think generational talents like that, you try to get them on your team. The Lakers are in a weird situation. The Lakers, I'm actually wondering, and I want to know what you think about this. Let me let me know on Twitter what you think about this. What do you think the Lakers were thinking after they saw Toronto win? Because to me, when I read the tea leaves a little there, I say, I think Los Angeles was influenced on two fronts. One, they do not want Anthony Davis to go somewhere else, have success, and possibly re-sign. And two, after the Raptors won, combined with Golden State's injury, combined with LeBron James's age, they became anxious or desperate to make this happen immediately. Because if you believe Anthony Davis, if you remove those two elements that I just mentioned, and you believe Anthony Davis, the Lakers basically just mortgaged the entire farm to get a player who's 26 years old, who they were likely to acquire when he was 27 years old. And I, and to answer the question here, I'm not even sure that's a mistake. I just think getting guys like that in those situations, you, you can see it's very hard to swap the players, you know, uh, cents on the dollar is what you're trading. That's it. We'll have more on that later. As always, a uh, big thanks to patrons, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Uh, you can sign up over there if you want, support the show. You help me do this. It's been an incredible season. As I said at the top, I will be putting out something for patrons only about sort of my post-mortem series analysis and breakdown, so look for that. Otherwise, I'll talk to you guys in the next episode, and as always, hope you're having a great day.